You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning. My name is Nancy Lindborg. I'm the president of the U.S. Institute of Peace, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our bipartisan congressional dialogue series. This is our 14th bipartisan congressional dialogue since we launched the series in late 2018. And these events have become, I think, a really inspiring forum that demonstrate the importance of coming together across the political aisle to engage in conversation and dialogue. Um, this, of course, is the essence of peace building. And this does happen every day in Washington, DC. So I'm pleased to, to welcome today two congressional leaders, Congressman John Molinar from Michigan and Congressman Tom Swazi from New York to share their perspectives on advancing international religious freedom. This is a topic that USIP has focused on for really most of our history. We launched our religion program 30 years ago researching the ways that violations of religious freedom contribute to violent conflict. And our findings underscored that though religious discrimination is not the root cause of most violent conflicts, the role of religion in peace and conflict is often very significant and needs to be understood. So for the last three decades, our work and our research has borne out that building societies and states where people of all faiths and none can flourish is not just an effective peace, it's also a critical ingredient for establishing peace in the first place. So based on that conviction and that evidence, our former USIP colleague, David Little, helped advise on the passage and implementation of the first International Religious Freedom Act in 1998. And today our Religion and Inclusive Societies program supports the peace building efforts of religious communities and organizations in conflict affected areas around the world from Colombia to Pakistan to Iraq. And uh, this past year, we partnered with USAID to launch a research initiative to better understand the correlation between religious freedom, peace and development. And this project will produce practical recommendations for USAID missions around the globe on how to design the kind of development projects that both protect and strengthen the freedom of religion and belief. So um, I just wanna note yesterday, we were pleased to, to welcome Knox Timms to USIP, shout out to Knox. He left uh, government after 20 years of service working exactly on these issues. So welcome to the team, Knox. Um, Thank you, Congressman Molinar and uh, Congressman Swazi for joining us today to discuss what, what you're doing in Congress to raise the importance of international religious freedom. Uh, the two served as honorary co-chairs of this year's National Prayer Breakfast. Um, and I wanna note that this was the year that Congressman John Lewis offered the closing prayer. And he very powerfully said, that we must become truly one family and hold on to each other. We must believe in one another. We must never give up on our fellow human beings. Together, today, we go in peace, we go in love, and we commit to treating each other as we would treat ourselves. 
So both of you have reflected in recent days on the remarkable contributions uh, of Congressman Lewis and your sorrow in his passing. The entire U.S. Institute of Peace community joins you in that sorrow and sense of deep loss. Um, we're, we're just grateful you could join us this week. So Congressman Molinar represents Michigan's fourth district. It includes parts of Midland, Lansing, and Central Michigan, and he serves on the House Appropriations Committee. Congressman Swazi represents New York's third district, which includes parts of Long Island and Queens. He served on the House, he serves on the House Ways and Means Committee and as vice chair of the bipartisan Congressional Problem Solvers Caucus. So each brings rich expertise to this issue and the broader arena of international affairs. So I'm so happy you both could join us. In just a moment, uh, Congressman Mullinar will offer remarks followed by Congressman Swazi. After that, we'll have a moderated discussion between the two. I get to ask a few questions and then we'll take questions from our online audience. So viewers can participate uh, in the live Q&A. You can submit uh, questions on the USIP web, uh, uh, webpage. Uh, and please join the conversation on Twitter use, using the hashtag BipartisanUSIP. So with that, Congressman Molinar, I'll turn things over to you. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Nancy. Very much appreciate the chance to be with you and appreciated your opening remarks as well. And uh, just grateful to be here with Tom and, and talk about the important issues of religious freedom and, and the religious persecution that's happening, occurring around the world. And uh, last year we visited the Institute of Peace and that's when this event was first suggested. We hope to be with you in person uh, but obviously the current circumstances don't permit that. But, you know, as co-chairs of the National Prayer Breakfast this year, we made religious freedom the theme of the breakfast, and highlighted stories of religious minorities around the world who are doing very good works uh, in the face of oppression. And really, Tom was the driver in making this the theme and, and had the vision for this, so I'm grateful for that. But the people we focused on... Uh, live remarkable lives of faith uh, outside of the uh, comfort that religious freedom that we enjoy here in the United States. And, and as they had that steadfast commitment, uh, their faith was a powerful uh, testament and uh, the incredible work these people are doing. Um, you mentioned John Lewis at the onset. And uh, once again, you know, just we're reminded about what a wonderful, gracious person uh, we had to enjoy as our congressman here, as well as, um, you know, his legacy and the civil rights movement. Uh, just a wonderful man. And we were so grateful that he gave the closing prayer at the prayer breakfast. And I can still remember the day when Tom and I uh, talked with him on the House floor about this. And he had been getting treated for his cancer. Um, he was weakened, but he immediately said yes, and he said he would either do it in person if he was able to, or would uh, tape it. And uh, of course, uh, he was only able to tape it, but we were just so grateful to have him uh, provide that spirit of unity right to close the National Prayer Breakfast. It's truly an honor to serve with him in Congress, and our prayers are with him, his family, uh, his loved ones and friends. Uh, as they mourn his passing and also celebrate his life. Uh, his legacy of faith and courage and service to our nation will live on for generations. 
is an inspiration to Tom, to me, and to so many of us who serve here. You know, faith provides us with the will to carry on even when all earthly obstacles seem to stand in our way. And with faith, we can overcome what stands in our way to make a difference in our communities. And, but if you live in a country where religious freedom does not exist, it makes it harder to have that faith. And when freedom of religion is oppressed, it becomes harder to unite as a community of believers to make positive change. Without the freedom to worship and sing together, faith in solitude becomes more challenging and more difficult and believers are discouraged. And there should be no doubt that the mission of the Institute of Peace and Global Religious Freedom go hand in hand. And when the goal is to bring together warring sides, trust must be built and opponents will have to believe in a peaceful future that they cannot see at the time, but they must create together. And if we accept all faiths, people around the world can come together as one. There'll be less to fight over. Uh, religious freedom and faith are partners in peace that will make our world a better place. And just again, want to thank you for the opportunity to be part of this Institute of Peace gathering and for bringing us together and discussing this important issue and, and hosting us this morning. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, Congressman Swazi, are you with us and ready to go? Yes, I'm here to ready to go. Ready to go. Okay. Over to you for a few opening comments. Now, can you not? Can you see me or not? We cannot. I don't know why that is. Maybe my Wi-Fi is not strong. There you go. There You're you all go. good. Okay, good. You're good. All right. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, thank you, John. John, those were great remarks. You always do a great job. And uh, we're so lucky to have John uh, in the Congress, even though he's on the other side. Uh, John is probably one of the nicest people I know in Congress. I don't know how he makes it in Congress. He's so nice. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, we have a great relationship. I want to thank him publicly. He gave me a great picture of he and I serving on the prayer breakfast yesterday. And I want to thank him publicly for doing that. And uh, I want to thank all of you for the good work that you do. And what we tried to do in this year's prayer breakfast was try to figure out where is a place that we could bring some commonality, that we could bring Democrats and Republicans together in a clear message that we could find agreement on. And, you know, you have to remember that the prayer breakfast was literally uh, the, the, the State of the Union was on Monday night. The acquittal of the president for impeachment was on Tuesday, and the prayer breakfast was Wednesday morning. So it was, a, as you can imagine, a tense time in our nation's capital. And we wanted to figure out how could we find some common ground. And uh, John and I worked together to talk about religious freedom. And we showed a video that day of Nancy Pelosi, who was on the dais that day, speaking about the importance of religious freedom, how, how horrible it is for somebody who... Uh, is a captive and their, their captors come to them and say, you know what, nobody really cares about you. Everybody's forgotten about you. That's the worst torture that someone could receive is to be there alone in prison and to hear that nobody cares about you. And then we had a speech from the president, you know, both of these were on video where he was talking about the importance of religious freedom and how 80% of the world, and he was saying how shocked he was when he read the statistic, 80% of the world does not enjoy religious freedom. And uh, John had the brilliant idea of asking uh, uh, John Lewis uh, to give the closing prayer that day. And John just described uh, what, what happened with that. And let me just say that uh, 
John and I were with some people the other night and someone read a reading uh, from a letter of the Paul to, to the Ephesians for the early church and talked about the importance uh, of, in, in, especially when the people are in conflict with each other, to exercise humility and gentleness. And that's exactly what John Lewis did, humility and gentleness. I mean, I, I just can't, I know I, I need to be a better person whenever I see, uh, whenever I think of John Lewis. And uh, even John, John's a great example of humility and gentleness. And, and it's something we could all try and work on a little bit more. So, you know, there's so much religious persecution in the world today. We read about the Uyghurs all the, all the time. I helped to co-draft some legislation uh, <clears throat> on the China Executive Commission on Human Rights uh, to sanction the Chinese Communist Party related to the Uyghurs. Uh, the way that the Chinese have treated the uh, Tibetans for such a long period of time. We've he heard so much about the Rohingya over the years, even Jewish persecution. You know, we talk about the fact that you know, there's two and a half billion Christians in the world. There's one and a half billion Muslims in the world. There's 900 million Hindus in the world. There's 300 million Buddhists in the world. There's 40 million Sikhs, but there's only 15 million Jewish people in the world. And 6 million were killed during the Holocaust. So, I mean, put that in perspective and think about the persecution of Jews, not only in America, but in Europe and throughout the world on a regular basis. Uh, and it goes on to the Coptic Christians and the Christians in South American countries and in Iraq and uh, just, you know, there are people being persecuted for their religious values all over the world. And as John said, you know, looking at most of our faiths, the different faiths of the world, uh, a lot of them are grounded in the same mission that you have of peace. Mm -hmm. and, and if we could encourage religious freedom, we could serve the dual purpose of encouraging so many other things, but especially peace. And... Uh, it was a great honor to serve in the prayer breakfast this year. It was quite a, it was a historical moment. It didn't go exactly as we planned in some respects, but a lot of good things came out of it. And we know that more good things will come out of it in time. And uh, we want to thank you for the work that you do and for inviting us here today. And we'll be happy to answer any questions that uh, you may have for us. Wonderful. Thank you both. And thank you for holding that bipartisan space at such a, at such a, uh, a particularly difficult moment. Well, Nancy, uh, I have to interrupt you for one second because John wants to say something. He says, "Go ahead, John. You go first. Say, I'm a I'm a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a Republican, and I'm a Democrat. <laughs> and uh, I have fifteen thousand farmers in my district. I know a guy named Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway." There's more to our shtick, but the, the, the idea is we couldn't, be, we couldn't be more different from each other, but we, we found common ground. No. Well, you know, I, I just want to start at somewhat of the personal level. I mean, you have both, both noted the importance of, of the stories that you've heard. And at the prayer breakfast, you showed a video of people from around the world who were facing religious uh, persecution. And... Um, uh, I'm wondering, you know, are there stories that have really stuck with you that have been a motivation for you on this? Um, Congressman Molinar, you want to start if you've got any? Well, one of the <laughs> in individuals that we focused on um, was Mama Maggie, who is a Coptic Christian in Egypt. And um, we focused on her because you know, Coptic Christians experience persecution in different places. What was so amazing about her was how she is serving the poorest of the poor 
caring for children uh, in Egypt. And regardless of religious background, regardless of, you know, whatever the rules are in place, she's doing an incredible work. Um, you know, she would be, uh, in my view, uh, a modern day uh, Mother Teresa. And we were so thrilled to focus on her story, but also have her join us at the prayer breakfast and, um, and just be part of that. So that, to me, was a tremendous encouragement. And I can't, I can't point to one specific story. I think of somebody, I mean, I heard one story in preparation for the breakfast and we invited them to come to the breakfast of a, a bishop uh, uh, in, a, in a, uh, a faith where you can, you can marry and his wife had been raped. Uh, and, you know, they continued to serve the public. And uh, stories about the, the Tibetans for so many years uh, where they've been persecuted and the, and the Uyghurs, I mean, uh, the idea that in today's world that there are a million people in forced labor camps and some of the products that they help to produce are actually show up in the American supply chain. And uh, it just goes, it goes, and, and they're forced to eat pork. You know, they're Muslims and they're forced to eat, they're, they're forced to eat during Ramadan when they're supposed to be fasting. And it, it, you, you, the horror stories all over the world of people being persecuted for their religion uh, the, the battles between the, 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 in India and, and Pakistan uh, over Kashmir and uh, uh, just the Ahmadi uh, Muslims. Uh, there's, just, there's just so many stories of people being persecuted just because their religion is someone different from others. So you've just given us a long list of, of uh, faiths and individuals who are facing this kind of persecution. Do you... What do you see as the most important role that Congress can play? Um, how do we best, uh, as the United States, play a role in protecting religious minorities? And, and, and do you all think of the potential for unintended consequences as we seek to do that? You know, so there's, there's a lot to balance here, obviously. There, you know, we, it's, it's hard to exercise foreign policy just based upon what's the morally right thing to do because we'd end up being in conflicts all over the world if that were the case because there are so many things that are uh, wrong taking place in the world and we have to balance our national security interest in the process but we have to be guided by what's right and wrong as well that's why uh, as I mentioned earlier we I worked on the the Uyghur Act to try and hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for what they're doing to the Uyghurs and we need to do more there and, you know, working on the, uh, in America, the Never Again Education Act to educate people, uh, to provide funding for Holocaust education in America. It's remarkable when you look at the statistics that so many people still think, you know, especially young people don't even know the Holocaust happened. Uh, and we need to, you know, that was only, that was 75 years ago. I talk about how I went to the Battle of the Bulge, uh, 75th anniversary, uh, this past, I can't even remember when it was now, everything's a little blur. Uh, but I read the book Band of Brothers in preparation for it. And literally weeks before, no, excuse me, days before and miles away from the concentration camps, the American soldiers were debating amongst each other. Is this for real? These rumors we've been hearing. Now, the six million have already been killed and, and millions of others have already been killed. And, you know, they have these extermination camps, people being burned in ovens. And it's happening in real time. 
and people are still wondering if it's just a propaganda campaign. Think about us now, 75 years detached from that, and people consciously trying to say that it's not real uh, and trying to promote that it's not real, how much impact that has. We have a, so a Congress has a big job to help make sure that we are educating people about the Holocaust. Uh, and again, the persecution of just pointing out sometimes, sometimes just, this is part of Nancy Pelosi's speech that we used in, in the video at the prayer breakfast. Sometimes just speaking people's uh, names or speaking the events that have happened that we believe that those get back to the people that are being persecuted and that gives them hope. Mm -hmm. And so we need to just speak out. And of course, as a nation, we need to hold ourselves up as an example once again, that we do stand for something special. And uh, some of that's slipping away and we need to get back to holding America up as an example of, of, of what's good and just and right. Thank you. Congressman Molinar, you wanna add, add sure. to that? I, you know, I think Tom is exactly right. The, and the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act was a step in the right direction. And, you know, one thing that has come uh, to the forefront since the pandemic began is the need to bring manufacturing of personal protective equipment back to the United States. Uh, we need more capacity in our country to make those items. And last week, the New York Times reported that Uyghur laborers are being forced to make PPE against their will. And sometimes what they make is being ending up in other countries, including ours. And so, you know, we can't allow China to use slave labor for its diplomatic efforts around the world. And, and part of that is, is making sure that we're making the things we need so we aren't relying on China for that. And, you know, at the individual level, as Tom mentioned, we need to be wary of what China's efforts are to use propaganda to divide us, but also, um, you know, we have to have the freedom to at one time also coexist and, and try and find ways to work with China, but at the same time, not hesitate to criticize them when they're doing the kinds of things they're doing. You look at what's happening in Hong Kong and the freedoms that are being taken away. Uh, that's simply not acceptable and we need to speak out on those things. And of course there, you're penalized for speaking out, you know, whatever. They oppress their own people, they crush freedom of speech, they jail Nobel winners and, and much worse. And so, uh, as Tom mentioned, you know, we can't simply turn a blind eye to this. We need to speak out and at the same time, look at ways of building better relationships with countries around the world. So we have a higher standard and, and America needs to lead the way. Are you finding that this is a topic where you can maintain a, a good bipartisan consensus? I, you know, I think, yeah, go ahead, John. Well, I, yeah, Tom, I, I think we would both agree how important it is to our country, uh, to our daily lives. It's in our constitution and it's always been who we are as a country. And because of this, I think there's a bipartisan consensus that something we can do together and uh, I believe that, you know, religious freedom makes our country and the world a better place. And, and uh, I hope, you know, that's something that is the, as Congress, as well as the State Department, really working on promoting this. Uh, as Tom mentioned, you had the Speaker of the House and the President both giving speeches on this. It's something that our country can stand firm on and be a leader for other nations around the world. So this is, you know, this is an example of, I think that every Democrat and every Republican would agree that 
that religious freedom is something that we should aspire to. And it just becomes a matter of degrees. You know, who's going who's gonna to let our economic interests, for example, outweigh our desire to stand up for something that we believe is morally right? Uh, what other strategic interests come into play? You know, for example, I just went to a ceremony the other night uh, with some Greek Orthodox uh, folks in my district uh, because the Hagia Sophia was just changed back into a mosque. So it was mm -hmm. once the, one of the greatest uh, churches in the Eastern Rite. And then it was made after the Ottoman uh, Empire took over, they, they made it into a mosque. And ab then about 85, 87 years ago, they made it back into a museum to celebrate both religions. Uh, Turkey, you know, priding itself on being a secular country. President Erdogan recently said, oh, let's make it back into a mosque and exclude the Christians. So the Greek Orthodox had a day of mourning throughout the world on, uh, on July 24th. So, you know, well, Turkey is a NATO ally. Turkey has very important strategic assets that are important to the United States uh, as far as our, our common defense. But President Erdogan continues to be more and more uh, not a secular country and become uh, more of a fundamentalist and is doing things that are not necessarily consistent with the values of NATO or the United States. So how do we balance something we all believe in, religious freedom, uh, with our other strategic interests? And that's the challenge of smart people, of goodwill, working together. You know, you can't solve any complicated problem in an environment of fear and anger. And that's why you need to identify people of goodwill. That's why you know the relationship John and I have and the relationship that we have with some of our, our colleagues uh, that we build trust over a long period of time, even though we radically disagree with each other on certain issues, but we trust each other, we admire each other. And, uh, or at least I admire him, I should say. And so, <laughs> and so you know, we know that we can trust, that you know, we're coming from a place of, boy, we really just like to do the right thing here. And when you can find people of goodwill to sit down and have conversations, then it's more likely that you could find common ground. When there's a fear of uh, I mean, an environment of fear and anger and distrust, it's very easy to just retreat into your you know, opposing corners and, and throw out the sound bites and just say, ah, you're one of those. So we have to figure out how to get that back in our country with a lot more relationship building. And it's not easy in this environment a lot more relationship building so we can find the common ground on issues like religious freedom that could really morph into so many other things. But there, none of these issues are simple. Everything's complicated. Every issue we discuss, healthcare, immigration, the environment, you know, peace, they're all complicated. They're not simple, but you need people who can trust each other to start as a starting point, even when they disagree. Well, with the, the prayer breakfast speaker, the speech was love, love your enemies. And, uh, and the idea was, is that, you know, it's not that we disagree. Of course, we're going to disagree. We just can't hold each other in contempt. If we hold each other in contempt, then we can never get to find common ground. The, the first indication of contempt is when you roll your eyes at the person. So no more eye rolling on this call. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've just outlined the core tenets of peace building. So thank you for that. And you know, of course, a lot of our research has uh, on, on peace and religion has focused on the ways in which religious freedom, freedom to believe or freedom to have no belief is fundamental to creating a more peaceful society. So do, uh, 
do you think there's room to use that evidence basis uh, to put forward the ways in which religious oppression damages a country's national security interests? So you mentioned what's going on with the Hagia Sophia in Turkey. You know, the evidence suggests that Turkey's national security will be undermined by an increasing environment of religious, religious oppression. We absolutely should use, use any, any knowledge that you've gained from the work that you've done for so many years with so many experts, uh, evidence-based knowledge that we can try and share with others. We, you know, I know that I would be willing to, I'm sure John would be willing to help you to promote any of those concepts and try and spread it amongst more people. That's exactly right. Well, you know, you mentioned a, a moment ago, Congressman Swazi, uh, about the complexity of all these issues. So I'd, I'd love to get both of your takes on the relationship between religious freedom and other human rights, uh, freedom of expression, including the right to criticize religion or civil rights related to gender or racial equality, um, which in different contexts, of course, can create different tensions. Um, Thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I, I look at our First Amendment and uh, I think it's a great model for these um, ideas. Um, I also look at, you know, when you think of, uh, you know, our founding documents uh, talking about people created in the image of God and endowed by our creator um, and that kind of a foundation, if, if, if everyone was to look at others in the same way, you'd tend to, to recognize the significance of each person. And uh, I think where you have the totalitarian regimes that are suppressing you know, expression, religious liberty, or treating one race different than another, it all comes back to that idea of uh, power over uh, another and using government to coerce um, others into some kind of behavior. And, and to me, um, if we can step back and, and try and help people see a, a foundational difference that it, that, that all people are created, um, you know, in the image of God, then it's hard for a government to then step on those rights because as we believe in our country, you know, those rights are inalienable. And so, you know, it's hard if you don't have that foundation. And that's why sometimes when we talk about freedom in different nations, uh, it doesn't live out to the, <clears throat> the promise of it, like that we've enjoyed in our country. But I think it's that process of continuing to strive for these ideals in our own country, uh, promoting them abroad and, and, and helping educate across the board why this matters. Thank you. Yeah, and I just, uh, my big concern about the world these days, even in America, is that we have to have some basic values that we, that guide our behavior. The world is so fast moving these days. You know, I, when I was a, a kid, I remember in grade school, I was at St. Patrick's grade school, and one of the nuns said, oh, the world is moving so quickly these days. Like, you know, we were, we were in the space race, and there were new medical advances, and, uh, you know, uh, television. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, it, this was in the 60s and early 70s. 
And, you know, she was concerned that we haven't had a chance because everything's moving so fast to figure out how this affects our values, how it affects our families, how it affects society, you know, how it affects the economy and workers and everything's just moving so fast. Well, think about how fast things are moving today. And if we can't rely on basic fundamental values, like the intrinsic value of every human being, if we can't rely on basic values, uh, uh, the things that we take for granted in this country, the First Amendment that John was talking about, uh, we can't possibly make decisions in this complicated, fast-moving world unless they're based on values. You can't really rely on anybody. Uh, the only thing you can really rely on is your values. And we are seeing our society in America become more and more, uh, especially with young people, not based on a, 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 a set of values. And it doesn't have to be a particular religion or any religion even. It's just, it's just a, a set of values. These are the values we uphold. But when you say I'm secular and I'm ashamed of America and I don't like the founding uh, fathers of our country and because of their, their flaws, then we don't have any basic values to all have as a common language. And then when we're dealing in the international arena, there are, certain, there are many countries that don't share any of those basic values that we have. They have either no values or a completely different set of values. So we have to figure out how can we have some common language with each other uh, and base it again on the intrinsic value of the human be being. Um, you know, I'm always so encouraged with my, my Indian American friends where they say namaste and they put their hands together. You know, it's like, I recognize the worth of you as an individual. And there are so many other, uh, societies and religions that are based on individual human worth. And so we have to get back to that somehow. Nancy, also, if, oh, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. If I could just build on what Tom just said, I think it's so important that intrinsic value of a human being. One of my heroes is William Wilberforce, who led the abolition of the slave trade in Great Britain. And uh, one of the things they did uh, when slavery was a huge financial uh, industry in Great Britain, one of the things they did was they created a medallion that showed a African uh, uh, black man who was uh, depicted as a slave, but then he also, it across it, it said, am I not a man? And they use this medallion to really drive home the point that regardless of your race, we are all human beings and there's intrinsic value in every human being. And in Wilberforce's day, what they did over a period of 30, 40 years was turned it from a huge economic boom where he was vilified for introducing a resolution against slavery. On his deathbed, they basically uh, passed uh, you know, outlawing slavery, and uh, it was almost unanimous at that point because they were able to shift public opinion based on the intrinsic value of every human being. Thank you both. And um, I want to remind our viewers that you can submit your questions on the USIP webpage and you can follow the conversation on hashtag uh, bipartisan USIP. And I have um, a number of questions that are coming in. And let me ask one that builds uh, a little bit on uh, Congressman Swazi, your demonstration of the namaste, which may serve us well uh, it, uh, as we live in the era of COVID. And the question is, 
How has the pandemic and the resulting lockdowns affected religious freedom around the world? Either of you care to give that a whirl? Well, that's a tough, tough question because um, we don't really have as much information about what's going on in the world right now. I mean, we're so, I, I, I was thinking about this, especially when I was home uh, in Glen Cove and with my family and we're thinking, we're so intent on staying safe. We're so intent on trying to address how are we gonna protect our families and protect our communities, protect our congressional district, protect our country. We're so intent on everything that's going on. Think of all the things that have been pushed off the pages of the newspaper uh, and on television that we just aren't hearing anything about. So I'm sure that there are a lot of dark places in the world uh, that we just have no idea of what's happening to people. And I'm sure that there are some people with nefarious motives that are using the cover of the pandemic and people's distraction of the pandemic to, to, to carry out other nefarious objectives. So we just don't know. We don't have the information as to what's going on uh, in a lot of places. And the information's not flowing as freely because we're just also distracted with what's going on. At the same time, it's given us all an opportunity to pause and we're not quite as uh, uh, on, the, on the, the hamster wheel going around and around as, as usual. And I think that we've had a chance to think about what's important. And uh, <clears throat> I've certainly thought about, you know, what's my obligation, what's my responsibility holding this job, this important job. Uh, to try and make the world a better place to live in. So hopefully something good will come out of that. With, so I'm sure a lot of people are doing that. Hmm. Well, that goes also to your earlier comment about the importance of just shining a light on what's happening and keeping the, the witnessing up. Uh, Congressman Molinar. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that struck me about this time that we're in, um, you know, we've seen so many things are outside of our control. And, you know, People want to make plans. You want to make plans for the future, and it's very uncertain. And uh, as Tom pointed out, it does provide an opportunity for getting clarity on what is most important. I think that has been one of the positive things that have come out of this is you know time for families to spend more time together. On the other hand, if, if someone is anxious and stressed by losing control, sometimes those behaviors to cope with that can be harmful. And uh, I think we'll find out more about that uh, as we go forward. But, um, you know, I for one have found how much I miss just being with people. And so when I have the opportunity now, I'm just very grateful uh, just for being together with, uh, whether it's family, friends, colleagues, and um, you know, it's kind of that absence makes the heart grow fonder concept and we've, we've missed a lot of that in these last few months. So there's uh, another questioner asks, uh, what do you see as the specific roles that faith-based communities and religious actors can and do play in reducing religious discrimination and polarization around the world? And how can the U.S. government best support these religious peace builders? Well, I think uh, protecting, yeah, protecting people whose voice is uh, maybe running counter to the 
regime. I, I think trying to advocate for um, the freedoms and the you know the liberty to speak out. Um, you know, I think uh, I was pleased when uh, Sam Brownback. Uh, convened a lot of the foreign ministers the evening before the National Prayer Breakfast, foreign ministers who basically agreed to sign on to some of the principles of religious liberty, and they came and met in the United States. And, and um, so I think the United States can play a role of convening. Uh, Congress can do that in a way of whether it's, you know, passing resolutions that uh, highlight uh, what's going on in the world, but also can can convene gatherings of people um, to discuss these issues and and try and advance the cause. You know, you think about the people that uh, must be on this call. I don't. I, I, someone told me there's going to be 200 people on this call. Um, I'm sure that many of you who are involved with the with with peace issues know that so much violence throughout the history of the world, even today, has been based on religion. People that have gone to war with each other over, uh, at least uh, on its face, saying that it was based upon religion. And um, we've got a, a real challenge to, number one, shine a light on religious persecution. Number two, to uh, find common ground here in our own country among Democrats and Republicans with people throughout the world, similar to the effort that uh, Ambassador Brownback had to try and find people who believe in religious freedom to work together across country lines. And three, to encourage not to let religion be the basis for persecution. I mean, that's, that's really a scary uh, historical fact. Um, so I think that just, you know, really talking about it, supporting groups like yours, uh, working together, finding common ground. It's, 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 you know, I've been doing this for so long. Sometimes it sounds like, well, it doesn't sound that exciting to say that, but it's really, it's just a lot of hard work and it's a lot of effort to try and, and get people to find this common ground and work together. Leadership really matters. When I was younger, I would have never said that I was the mayor of my hometown starting in January of 1994 for eight years. And then I was a county executive for eight years. And now I'm in Congress for whatever it is, three or four years. And, uh, now I really believe leadership really matters and getting people to just lead on issues of common ground is, is what, what is the saying, John, that you had the guy from uh, Harvard came and said, he says, leadership is disappointing your your supporters at a rate they can absorb. <laughs> so, so we need some more of that. That was Marty Linsky. <laughs> right. That's good. You know, we have had the great privilege at USIP of working with very courageous pastors and imams in northern Nigeria, for example, who have uh, been leaders in saying, wait a minute, we're not going to fight these people just because they're a different religion. So I, you, you are wise to remind us of the importance of that kind of leadership. Um, and there's some great examples in Kenya right now, great examples in Kenya right now where opposing factions really found peace with each other through uh, uh, through faith yeah. yes yes um and our research demonstrates that oftentimes you know religion is not always the root cause it's often invoked uh there's often other causes but when you have freedom of religion you're more likely to have a peaceful society but this leads me to 
this question, and that is, um, you know, you, we, we talked a little bit about Turkey, but there are also a lot of examples underway right now of the persecution of Muslims in India. India, of course, is a democracy, an ally of ours. Um, you know, the concern is that it actually could lead to national security damage for India. Uh, but how should we respond? What, what could the U.S. do to address this trend in the world's largest democracy? I think the great hope for India is that they have a very strong system of law and rules of law. And their Supreme Court has been very, very good about enforcing the law even when it disagrees with the administration. Um, so it's, it's a big challenge for us uh, when, you know, we have an ally that purportedly shares our values, uh, democracy, worth of the individual, the rule of law. Uh, and then we see them doing things that we don't like. Um, we have to recognize the sovereignty of other countries. We have to recognize that they have in a democratic system, a, a system of elections where they're electing their leaders and we have to have some confidence that they're gonna figure it out themselves. I mean, think of our allies looking at America right now with, you know, with, you know, the violence being, being taking place, uh, uh, you know, questioning what the heck is going on in our country. And, you know, so, and we don't want them interfering with our country, even though we see that that is happening. Uh, so um, I think we need to speak out against the things that we think are wrong and just speak up for what the values are that we have. Again, we've got to figure out how to do that in a way that balances our long-term interests with those nations as well. That's why relationships, again, most important thing in relationships is not just amongst members of Congress, but relationships with our allies. And we're in a position of trust where we can say to them and criticize them in a, in a, that will not damage our relationship in the process. But it's a matter of, of hard work over a long period of time based on evidence and values. Thank you. Congressman Molinar, you want to add to that? Well, I, I think Tom's right that, you know, there's, um, when I think of William Wilberforce, I look at what he did was persuasion and influence. And, and I think that, you know, in our case with other nations, you know, we have tools like sanctions. Um, we can certainly criticize, but we also want to influence and persuade in, in positive ways. And that can be through, you know, different institutions like yours. It can be through government to government relations. It can also be in the private sector. And I, I look at the opportunities where when we're doing business with people uh, for the influence there as well. And, and uh, I think it's a combination of all of the above in order to influence nations in a better direction without the heavy hand of, of uh, direct intervention at times. Thank you. Um... We have, uh, we have questions stacking up, so I'll try to get to everybody's questions. One is, um, can you point to examples of successful congressional intervention on behalf of greater religious freedom? And if so, what do you think were the dynamics that enabled that positive improvement to happen? 
I can't point to anything specific right now. This is a relatively new phenomenon for us. And, it, you know, this was something that we really started to engage in. I started to engage in um, with the China Commission and the Uyghurs uh, most recently. And, you know, Hong Kong is not really religious freedom, but same same concept there. Uh, and then with the prayer breakfast was to try and bring uh, a light to this issue. Uh, and quite frankly, Sam Brownback ran with that idea at the same time and started to develop this uh, international coalition for religious freedom. And honestly, the, the prayer breakfast got a little sidetracked with its theme uh, because of some other things that happened that day. And, uh, uh, and then we hit the pandemic. So there hasn't been as much momentum with this as we would like. Uh, but I, I have, I have, I have no doubt that if we can, if we can bring it back to the fore, it'll be very successful. Congressman mm -hmm. Milner, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think it's difficult to point to a piece of legislation that has, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have different tools um, and sometimes it's the heavy hand, it's sometimes it's more uh, incentive-based. Um, you know, I think we need to look at everything we're doing, whether it's, you know, interactions on the, you know, the aid that we give other nations, uh, whether it's, you know, kind of our relationship relative to sanctions and those kinds of things. But what I love about the idea of sort of the informal relationship building, the influence and persuasion that can occur individual to individual, uh, to me, what that can do is foster trust and then some of the issues that are underlying uh, can come out in more constructive ways. I, you know, one of the powerful in examples in history is, you know, the R Rwanda genocide. And when you think of how that started, where uh, two presidents had been trying to work at some kind of a reconciliation, their plane is shut down, shot down, and all these issues that had been underlying in the country um, came to the surface in a very violent way. Uh, very tragic, you know, a, a step forward was, was, you know, in happening and then the, the tragedy and then the larger tragedy. But then you look at the healing that has occurred in that country since that time and the progress that's being made through peacemakers, people promoting reconciliation. Uh, it's, it's got to, we've got to be vigilant to work all the way through and you hope that you don't have those kinds of horrific events and that we can work on the issues before it gets to that point. But Congress can only do so much through its formal uh, policies and channels. A lot of this has to be done informally, relationship by relationship. And then also kind of what message we're sending out about the dignity of human life and uh, each person having that intrinsic value. And it has to be a, an effort of the executive branch, quite frankly, that, you know, that to bring it all together in a comprehensive policy. And we're trying to encourage that to be a, something that's re-embraced by our nation uh, because it really has to be a comprehensive overarching policy. As John Lewis said over and over again, this is not the work of a, of a week or a month or a year or a decade. This is the work of a lifetime. And America you know, has been a project of, of, of two centuries. Uh, and, you know, we're not exactly on the same tra trajectory we, we were, uh, let's say, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. So 
we need to figure out what trajectory we want to have going forward internationally and what kind of image we want to hold up to the rest of the world and what role do we have to play regarding human rights generally uh, of which uh, religious freedom and religious persecution are a, a part of that. Let, let, me, let me build on that uh, last comment because we have several questioners who are asking, how do we ensure that the rights of people belonging to oppressed groups, such as the LGBTI communities, are not infringed upon on the basis of religious freedom? Goes to that's the a very big challenge. You know, that's, that's, that's a, a really big challenge. And, and, you know, you have a person like John Lewis, who was a very religious man, a, a, an example that we would all hold up as somebody uh, that we would want to emulate. Uh, and he would always talk about how the people have intrinsic human worth, whether they're black or white or they're rich or they're poor or they're straight or they're gay. And, you know, I would, I would say that, you know, it's essential that that intrinsic human worth that we talk about has to be seen for people regardless of their uh, sexual preference as well. So we have to understand that, you know, everybody's still a human being and has to be treated with, with human respect and dignity. Yeah, and just to build on what Tom said, I, I think the idea of the golden rule, treating others the way we would want to be treated, I think is important. Um, you know, I think it's also, you know, as Tom mentioned, this intrinsic dignity and value of and human worth, um, viewing all in that context without demonizing people, even though there may be disagreements, uh, you know, it's not always about agreeing on political issues. Uh, sometimes it's understanding and respecting someone who may have a different viewpoint. And I think that's an important thing that our culture, we need to continue to to stress that because I, I fear that at times um, we're silencing people's voices that we don't agree with. And it's important that people are heard and respected, even though there may be uh, not the same viewpoint on a political issue. Thank you both. Um, uh, another questioner asks, what role do international organizations like the UN um, play in promoting religious freedom around the world? And how does the US collaborate or plug into those opportunities? And do these multilateral efforts ever lead to tensions over how the US and our allies think about religious freedom? And I, you, you cited earlier Congressman Swati, NATO ally, Turkey, who we're disagreeing with right now. So, you know, the UN, you know, we're, we're not always happy with the way the UN, UN conducts itself. And, but it's, it, the idea of the UN is, the, is one of the great ideas of history. And, you know, we have to figure, you know, all of this stuff is always, you know, it's very frustrating for me as a former mayor and a former county executive to not be the boss, to be a legislator now. It's really, I don't know how good a legislator I am sometimes because I just want to just fix things right away. But a lot of it is about cajoling and, and uh, uh, you know, a tweak here and a tweak there and making a speech and trying to persuade people over a period of time. It's not the same as having an agenda and driving the agenda and using your resources to move it forward. So, 
you know, the president who I don't agree with on many things gave his speech about religious freedom at the UN. And it was a very effective speech such that we, you know, we put it in a video along with Nancy Pelosi's speech before uh, uh, our committee on, on human rights. So, you know, these international convening bodies are great opportunities for people of different backgrounds, different agendas, uh, different values to come together under the banner of trying to find common ground and utilizing, you know, what you talked about before, you know, proven models of, of, of peacemaking, you know, different techniques uh, <clears throat> need to be used in these international bodies uh, so that they aren't hijacked. You know, same as religion's not hijacked, these international bodies are not hijacked. Uh, it's why politics and governing and peacemaking is so hard because there will always be people who will try and hijack the good intents of the people involved to try and push their own agenda instead of try, trying to find common ground. And so it just requires a lot of smart, educated, hardworking people that are willing to make a sacrifice over a long period of time to do the hard work that's necessary uh, to move forward. We, you know, the UN is, is such a fantastic idea. It's like unbelievable. NATO is so, what an awesome thing. You know, NATO came out of, you know, the D-Day the invasion. That's where we actually started to work with each other for real as a, as a, as a big group of complex, uh, different, differing interests with different sets of power. So it's just a, it's just a long period of time, a lot of hard work o over a, a lifetime. Just don't give up. <laughs> well, yeah, one example I'd like to cite, uh, both Tom and I have gotten to know David Beasley, uh, who is head of the United Nations or the World Food Program. And to me, that's an example of how nations coming together to help people who are suffering from the COVID-19 um, locusts in some areas of the world, famine, war, terrorism, uh, all sorts of crises. And you have an organization where people are contributing and the United States has been a real leader in this, bringing food and trying to find ways to get it to the people most in need. Uh, to me, that's a great example of collaboration. It's, it's not full of political agenda and intrigue. Um, and to me, that's an area where, you know, some really positive things are happening uh, on the ground. And I do think, you know, as Tom mentioned, there's an appropriate role for the United Nations in terms of a foreign for voices to be heard. Um, where I think it gets somewhat complicated is, you know, there's a lot of different agendas and alliances and intrigue. And sometimes it doesn't seem as, as productive as, as we would like it to be. But I certainly think the World Food Program and, and the work they're doing right on the ground is a tremendous benefit for all of us uh, throughout the world. Let me, let me just say one thing that's a more general topic. You know, our country's so divided and there was a study done called Hidden Tribes and America's divided up into seven groups. The far left 
which as I said before, has become very secular and very ashamed of America and really unhappy with our, our country's history, is really only 8% of the country. There's the far right, which is, you know, very racist and anti-immigrant and anti this and anti that and makes up like 6% of America. Then you have the traditional progressives and the traditional conservatives, but there's three groups in the middle that make up most of America these days, 52% of our country, which are the politically disenchanted and the politically disengaged. Every, the 52% of our country, which is saying, ah, I'm just so sick of it all. Everybody stinks, nobody's any good. The whole system's broken, it doesn't work. And, you know, it made me think of this, you know, there's so many people say, oh, the UN, you know, that doesn't do anything and it's not working. And, and this international organization, that we're, that's not working. This is not working. And I'm just so fed up. There are interests that exist both in America and outside of America yeah, that want us not to believe in our system, in our country, and don't want us to believe in the international organizations that have been set up. They, they want to foment the more extreme voices using social media. This is a relatively new, social media is a relatively new phenomenon. We don't realize how much our strategic adversaries will use social media to try and foment civil unrest in our country and throughout the world by trying to promote some of the most extreme voices as to why we can't get along with each other, why we can't find a common ground, why you should be politically disenchanted, why you should be politically disengaged. This goes back to the whole fast moving world and how much things have changed. You know, technology and globalism have happened very rapidly over the past 10, 20 years, maybe even the past 10 years, 10 years, five years. And we haven't caught up with how this is affecting us. And there are people that are manipulating the messages that we are hearing on a regular basis that are discouraging us from utilizing these international agencies, from using American institutions to try and solve our problems. And there are people in very powerful positions that are trying to foment that type of distrust and disengagement. So we have to guard against that and be conscious of it and work to try and address it. Because most people are like most people on this call, which is like, hey, can't we just work together to try and solve the problems? Can't we just make the world a better place to live? Can't, we just, can't you just sit down and work it out? So. Thank you uh, for that. And um, we are out of time. So let me just check, Congressman Molinar, if you have any quick final thoughts you'd like to add. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, hosting us. And it's been a wonderful discussion. I appreciate all the people who participated uh, virtually in this. And uh, it's good to be with Tom Swazi. He's very thoughtful. And, uh, you know, he's someone who is a person of goodwill. And we always look for ways to find common ground on things, whether we can work on it legislatively or as through friends, through relationships. Uh, he's really uh, a joy to collaborate with. We collaborated on the National Prayer Breakfast and, and uh, look forward to other opportunities as well. But uh, again, thanks for having us. Uh, I'm reminded of the phrase, blessed are the peacemakers. And uh, thank you for your, what you're doing to, to promote peace around the world. Thank you, thank you. Congressman Swazi, a quick last word. Just thank you so much for the good work that you do. We know how important it is uh, and you're so valued uh, for what you do. And, and, and I recognize that for all of us, sometimes people don't recognize uh, the good work that they're doing. And, and we do recognize it. We're grateful to you for it, for devoting your lives to uh, trying to make the world a better place. So thank you so much.
Well, thank you both. Uh, we're very grateful for the work that you're doing, for the bipartisan spirit that you're carrying forward. Uh, thank you for reminding us about the importance of values and trust and sitting down and, and having a conversation with each other. Um, we are very thankful that you joined us virtually. We hope to have you in the building for our next conversation. Um, and thank you to all of our viewers for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Thank you.